can't connect, low energy, no influence. We've got to change the way we manage our energy. We've got to change the way we use metaphors. We've got to change the way we employ rhetorical devices. We can't get potruants carrying on like we have been. We absolutely need to learn and practice how to connect with anyone, anywhere, anytime. We need to transform our ability to energize. This will positively affect anyone we're intentionally connecting with. And it starts with learning from an expert. So today we are launching a brand new book that will skyrocket your ability to inspire, influence and energize others. This is going to blow your mind and blow up this podcast much like the last time my guest was here. And in less than an hour, you'll have a new superpower. This is just one example of one of the tools that I learned in this episode of Podfluence from my amazing guest, a friend of the show, Simon Lancaster. Simon very kindly invited me and you to be a part of his book launch for his new book, Connect, which did come out earlier in the year and definitely available for you to go and get right now. We did this as a live online event. You may have to excuse some of the sound quality at certain points. Simon has a new book called Connect, how to inspire, influence, and energize anyone, anywhere, anytime. If you haven't come across Simon's work before, not only is Simon an excellent speechwriter and public speaker, but he has written some amazing books. Not just his latest book, but also an amazing book on speechwriting. One of my favorites is his book, Winning Minds. He explores the darker side of rhetorical language with You Are Not Human. He's also become a little bit of a TikTok hit recently with some of his short form videos, which we talk about a little bit. This is Podfluence, the show for business coaches and speakers that helps you build professional authority. I invite you now to enjoy this episode with my amazing guest, Simon Lancaster. Welcome to Podfluence, the podcast for business coaches and professional speakers who want to build audience and authority through podcasts. Here's your host, international coach and speaker, John Ball. Welcome to the show. And today we are going to be having a chat with Simon Lancaster. We're actually speaking on launch day of his new book, Connect, which I have been very happily plan my way through and enjoying immensely. Now I've read a lot of Simon's books, so I knew that this was going to be good stuff and have very much been looking forward to chatting with Simon about this. So let me officially welcome to the new Podfluence show, Simon Lancaster. Hi, Simon. Brilliant. It's great to be here, Johnny, on your new portmanteau show, indeed. Podfluence, loving it. And this is something I was thinking about whilst I was reading some of the earlier chapters of your book, because you actually talk about things like portmanteaus and where we combine two words together to mean something else, thinking that's exactly what I've done with the title of my show. That's great. We can we can bring that up, and you did so fantastic. I would have if you hadn't. So I'm not like to kick off my show by asking people who for you is somebody who you particularly respect and look up to for the influence that they've built up and how they've used it. Let me tell you about the legend in my life who is Alan Johnson. Now, some of the people watching this will be familiar with Alan Johnson. For those who are not, let me just explain. He's a British politician, a Labour politician. He grew up in absolute poverty. He was orphaned when he was 12 years old, left school with no qualifications, aged 15. He then became a postman. He worked as a postman, ended up leading 
the trade union that represents postal workers and communication workers. And then he went into politics when he was about 50. That's where I got to know him. And I worked for him when I was in my mid-20s. And in my mid-20s, I was still finding myself. I was still trying to work out who I was, what I wanted to be, that awkward kind of post-adolescence age. And I wasn't sure where I wanted to get to. Meeting Alan was incredible because he was someone who, like me, grew up in poverty in London. I grew up in a one-bed council flat in Paddington where there was me and my brother um, sharing a bedroom and my mum was sleeping in the front room. We were on free school meals, which is a badge that you have to wear when you're poor. <laughs> you used to, in those days, going to school. And it was working with Alan that really made me believe that where you came from in life need to determine where you wound up, that you could overcome all of that. You could leave all of that behind. There need be no barriers. And Alan, just the whole, so much about his style, his gentle way, his very human way of connecting with people, his compassion, his incredible memory. He's always inspired me and he's, he's a great friend now. But that, of course, won't have impinged on his impartiality at all when he was given the brilliant reference, which he did give for my book. <laughs> Indeed, he did. That's a, a great person to look up to as well, and certainly someone who, who does have a good reputation for being a great speech maker and even a, a writer. Right? He's written some books. Yeah, he's a best-selling writer now. He sells his books sell millions. He's now he's written four volumes of biography, and he's written two novels as well. So his next novel is coming out this September. So I'm looking forward to his launch party is the next one after my launch party that I'm going to. Well, that's great. It's interesting that this is one of the things that perhaps did surprise me a little bit in the book. And only one of the things, because there were some others as well, that you have a background that, that you do, that you haven't come from a wealthy upper class or upper middle class background. And I think we tend to have this association that speech writers and people in the political world who would be creating that do come from very well-to-do backgrounds and it's certainly interesting to hear that that you did not come from that but how did you end up going from where you were into the world of comms and speech writing well i was always absolutely fascinated with language johnny when i was at school i always wanted to be a songwriter and so that got me into writing songs and when you're writing songs you're thinking about things like the rhythm of language like metaphors, you're thinking about story, all of this kind of stuff. And I spent years plowing unsuccessfully, trying to be a songwriter, writing literally a song a week and recording it on one of those little studios that you could buy back in the 90s. And I just got nowhere. I send them to heaps and heaps of record companies, but never got anywhere. And so then I kind of slid into, into the civil service, really, and just worked my way up, got onto the fast stream program which is it is weird if you come from a poor background like I did because there aren't many people from that sort of background on the fast stream so you did always feel a little bit insecure you were always very conscious oh my god you people are probably so um much cleverer than me but in the end you realize no that they were just born lucky really they were born lucky <laughs> and it's nothing to it and that was the thing that Alan Johnson taught me working with because he was still yeah. Still to this day, he's not got more than a couple of O-levels and he's one of the most intelligent people that I've ever worked with. So who cares really? It does maybe go to show us that sometimes the only limitations we really have are the ones that 
we put on ourselves from time to time, uh, or quite often anyway, we live within our own limitations and expectations generally. And so it's always great when you see people that can step out of that. The last time we spoke, I think we did talk a little bit about how rhetoric seems to be something that is in the realms of the elites, the people who have the power tend to keep that information within their own circles, and it's not commonly taught. And so I think you were my very first introduction to rhetoric as something that I've come most of my life without never having even heard of. And then when I heard, I think it was your TEDx Verona talk that you were talking about that, I was thinking, this is something I really need to know about. If I want to be doing public speaking and presentations or really any kind of communication effectively, this is something I should have. This is something everyone should have. Why is it you think it isn't? so commonly taught. That is changing. I mean, more and more people are now getting involved with this and promoting oracy on the curriculum. There's a large movement of academics now that have been working with the Department for Education. The Department for Education has made changes to the curriculum in the last few years where there's cross-party consent. So there is some progress and there's all sorts of groups now that are now actively working to help people in. So literally, just before coming on to your podcast, Johnny, I gave a speech to a fantastic organization called the Patchwork Foundation. Now, the Patchwork Foundation has been set up with the explicit purpose to help people from underrepresented backgrounds get to the top of politics. And so I just gave a speech to about 40 people uh, from there, all people between the age of 18 to 30, who are very bright but are not the sort of people that you see in the House of Commons for all sorts of reasons. And so I think we're making progress. More and more people are talking about rhetoric. I think one of the problems is that people think of rhetoric as a dirty word. Do you think that, Johnny? Is that, you know, it's got negative connotations? Not anymore, but I think, yeah. I, I think I used to hear that and I had a certain connotation of it. It wasn't necessarily a dirty word, but... I don't think I really understood the scope of it as, as a word. It was more something like you, you understood it was a certain type of talking or maybe a more of a common usage that people tend to use it as is just the style of language that you have. And so it tended to be used in association with like negative stuff that certain politicians or leaders were saying. And so now I don't have that. Now I understand what rhetoric is and have been learning about it for the last several years as much as I possibly can from people like yourself. So I'm happy to say that my, my opinion has changed it. And I do see more people having awareness of it, but I'm still generally surprised at how few people that seems to be. I think it's going to take quite a long time for that to really spread out and become a more common level of knowledge that people have. Yeah. And and hopefully we'll get there. I think the more the, the more that we talk about it, every time I say it, I have to say rhetoric, the art of persuasion, <laughs> you know, and then people are like, oh, okay. Otherwise you do, you hear rhetoric is just like, oh, it's hot air. It's it guff. Yeah. So yeah, I'm happy to say that my, my feelings and opinions on that have changed, but it is super important that people have this because we probably use a lot of these things in our lives without even knowing that we do. And I know that I had been involved with Toastmasters for a long time and even in those organizations, public speaking groups, you'll hear a lot of people talking about hour of three and things like that. And three is a very common number. It comes up a lot, even in your books and things, and certainly appears in rhetoric a great amount of time. 
But one of the things that I really found interesting at the start of your book was talking about Brexit. Whether you loathe him or hate him, Boris Johnson is a very good speaker, communicator, using metaphors and similes and being able to pull people in with some of the things that he talks about. I don't know, you talked about him before in some of your other books, but the whole thing about cake and Brexit, can you just tell us a bit more about that for our audience? Yeah, so I run through the whole history of the language of Brexit, basically. Just Brexit is, what is it, six six letters, you know, Brexit. And yet there's so much within those six letters and the choice of those six letters. So now when we talk about Brexit, we all understand that Brexit is Brexit. But why did we call it Brexit? Brexit instantly put the focus on exit, on us leaving. So that is the image straight away that you're planting in people's minds. Didn't have to call it that. We could have called it brew, which would have been a combination between Britain and the EU. This is the debate on brew. What the Well, brew is then a warm cup of tea. Sounds a little bit different. Yeah. Or why didn't we call it Bryn? A vote on Bryn, which I'm speaking to now from Wales. Bryn is a lovely hill. That's progress. But we called it Brexit. And Brexit sounds like breakfast. There's a phonological connection between Brexit and breakfast. And we saw this all the time when people were speaking about Brexit, they'd say breakfast. And when people were then saying about their breakfast, they'd say Brexit and people kept muddling them up. And so they, in our brains, in our subconscious, there's a little, there's a connection between Brexit and breakfast, just as there is now between Jeremy Hunt and another word, which I won't say on your program, but to the extent that people are into it now, it's very hard to say Jeremy Hunt without making a mistake. Although I've managed to do it so far, Johnny. Maybe the third time I'll make the slip. So you see, there was a phonological connection there between Brexit and breakfast. But Boris Johnson then actively exploited that. And you could see he did throughout the campaign. So in the run-up to the referendum, he literally, his last visit before the vote, he went to a biscuit factory. He walks in there. And he says, I've never seen so much dough in all my life. But the trouble is you've got control over your dough. We don't have control over our dough. 50 million pounds a day we're sending to Brussels. We need to take back control. So he was establishing this connection in people's minds. Biscuits, food, and the European Union taking it away. Then he started talking about how we're going to have our cake and eat it in the negotiations. No one understands European treaties. We all understand cake. Cake is lovely. And when we look at cake, we start salivating. Our stomach starts producing enzymes. Then, of course, in the 2019 election, he kept talking about his oven-ready deal. And again, he's making a connection. He's making a connection in our minds between Brexit, which is a geopolitical treaty. It's very, very complicated. No one really understands much about it, even experts. They don't really understand the implications who can it's way too complicated but we all understand cake and that's what he did he made a connection and so every everyone forgets about that because all they're looking at is the cake or the scones or the buns or whatever else he's doing boris johnson is a communications yeah. genius he, he certainly has done very well with a lot of his communications I, I know he's certainly having some struggles at the moment and i wonder if, if that sort of magical way of speaking is really going to dig him out of this hole, but it's certainly keeping him going for a little while longer at least. But even with something like that, we generally like to think that we are not so easily swayed along or influenced by things like that because they, they seem like they shouldn't have such power over us. 
but they do. Why is that, do you think? Because we're human beings and we just have these instincts to save us, to keep us alive. If we didn't salivate when we saw food and we didn't start thinking about food when we saw food, you know, we would perish if we didn't have an appetite. And so these are vital things that we need. But essentially what Boris is doing there is he's hacking us. <laughs> you see, he's making a connection between something that we don't like, don't care about, don't understand, i.e. Britain's relationship with the European Union. And he's connecting it with something we do like, do care about and do understand. So yes, we're being, which is of course the other important thing about teaching rhetoric, not only so that we're able to lead ourselves, but also so we can understand when other people are misleading us or falsely directing us by instincts. Yeah. Do you think then having an awareness around the subject does afford some level of resistance potentially to these things being used on you? Yeah, I th well, I think so. <laughs> and you can certainly highlight it. But then again, we're all human beings. We all fall for it. I've been thinking about this stuff, writing about this stuff for like a couple of decades now. And yet still, still, and I swear this to you, Johnny, if I see Boris Johnson making a jam scone and putting cream on and then jam, I'm sorry, I'm hungry. And I'm thinking about, I, I can't help. I literally can't help that. You know, and this is where he's very, very clever because even people who are not sympathetic to him, either personally or politically, which is me, I'm not sympathetic to his politics or to his personality. But still, if he shows me a cake, I'm going to get hungry. And if he tells me a funny joke, as he frequently does, he's frequently very funny, he will make me laugh. And he does that. He does that. And he does that with a lot of people. And that's why. I still think the Tories will be insane if they let him go. Even after everything, I think he's still the person who, for the Conservatives, is most likely to be Keir Starmer. I think they still believe that as well, which is why he's hanging on in there. Well, I was enjoying listening to the audiobook today. It came through and I've been listening to it on high speed today. And, and you speak fairly fast anyway, so listening to it on high speed, I have to be careful with missing stuff. But uh, you were talking about the clown effect. And, and how that's had a, an impact on us as well. That's actually much more powerful than we think. And it's devised, it's planned, it's not spontaneous, it's not who he is. It's a device more than anything else, and it's an effective one at that. Well, I think probably he is a bit of a jerk, and he probably is a bit scruffy, but you can see he just hands it up, and this is a part of his character, a part of his personality that he sees is actually advantageous. He exploits it. But again, it's this thing about the ability to distract us from the real issue by make us laugh and actually make us feel good because when we laugh, we, we do feel good. And in the book, I draw a comparison actually between Boris Johnson and Zelensky, which is not necessarily a point of connection which many your listeners will appreciate. But I do see that they're very much from the same piece, from the same pod, basically, that both of them rose to the top through appearances on satirical TV yeah. programs. Uh, they then all of a sudden actually became serious politicians, but they won elections. Both of them won elections with cries of, I'm very conscious your mother's listening, Johnny, but with cries of an F 
the electorate. I'm. I. You see, I'm really fighting hard not to swear in this podcast. <laughs> I, I would just. I, I would go for it. My mum doesn't know where you live. You'll be safe. Okay. I think she's probably got the idea now. Anyway, she has heard that word before, even from her youngest son. To move on a little bit from Boris and political rhetoric, one of the things that surprised me about your book was. There's quite a bit of personal development stuff in there. I'm, I'm someone who's worked in the personal development area and professional development for a long time. So it, I wasn't expecting it. And it wasn't an unpleasant surprise or anything like that. It was just a bit of a surprise. But how did those sorts of things like visualization and breathing exercises make it into the book? What made you think that that, that was important for us to be understanding and utilizing with connection? That I think they're just absolutely critical and they're things that are always practiced, but they're things that I've never really talked about them before. And I've always focused on kind of the speech writing aspect of what I do. But the thing is that now more and more people really need to know about this stuff. And I think particularly post pandemic, as people slowly, everyone's moving at their same space, but slowly getting into the real world. And I can tell you that everyone has had struggles with this. Even people you'd never imagine have had struggles with it. And over the last few months, a couple of household name politicians and a couple of CEOs that I've worked with for years who were big, big, big hitters have been speaking to me about their feeling nervous before a speech that in the past just wouldn't have been. So I'm like, well, I'll tell you what I do. And these, this advice goes down very, very well. And it's very, very simple. But just a lot of the time, it's just about drowning the negative narrative that many people have running in their minds and just literally not giving it airtime, not giving it airtime and just creating your positive narrative and keeping on coming back to that. I just think it's essential. I think people really need to know this stuff now. And I've written this book much more for a general audience than my previous books because you've yeah. all of them. I can kind of speak to you about them in turn. The speech writing expert guide was for professional speakers. Winning Minds was for PR experts and leaders. And then You Are Not Human. That was for a general audience, but it was taking a very particular view on the dark side of Rex. This one is really, if I've written this, the thinking very much of me when I was like in my mid-twenties and like really thinking, how do I make breakthrough now? How do I establish myself? And so I, this is how you do it, but it's written with the benefit of 25 years experience working with these top leaders and some of the things that I've learned and of course that I've studied and, and read since. And I think it's valuable stuff. And it's funny because when I've been talking about the books, people, it's always the positive visualization stuff that they come back to. I did a thing, I did a launch event just in the local, beautiful independent bookshop in the Brecon Beacons called Bookish. And there were about 40 or 50 people there. Some were friends, but not all of them were friends. There were a few people who just bought tickets and had come along. And they were the ones who were coming up to me afterwards and saying, oh my God, I still suffer from anxiety terribly. The stuff you were saying about positive visualization is so important and so useful. And I think this is great that people are talking about this stuff now. Because I tell you what, when I was in my mid-twenties and I suffered from anxiety, I used to get terrible shakes in meetings and all that stuff. 
I never told a soul about it. I told my mum about it. I told my brother about it. That was it. Yeah. No, no one else. It's great that people can have these conversations. Equally, I think there's a danger that in having these conversations, you then keep having those conversations and people then judge you as being, you're the anxious bloke or you're, do you know what I mean? So it's, it's still, it's torturing territory. Yeah, it can be a bit like if you start going to support group and stuff and you, your whole focus becomes on that and you might end up amplifying the issue rather than resolving it. So yeah, I think it's important to, to be aware of that at least that it gets support you need it, but absolutely. I like to be solution focused. That was one of the reasons I got into coaching in the first place some years ago. I feel it's very serendipitous that we're talking when we are because the, this is also me launching my new podcast or the new iteration of my podcast, which it's like we said, it's called Podfluence, a portmanteau of podcast and influence, moving on from speaking influence much more to influence in, in the world of podcasting, particularly, but influence in general. But a big part of that is connection. And that's something I've really wanted to focus on with this, that like how important it is for podcasters and podcast guests to connect with each other and to connect with the audiences too. And I think there's a lot in your book that helps with that. And not really just for podcasters as well. You talk about TikTok in the book and how we can learn things from, you can talk about some specific lessons that we were able to learn from some successful TikTokers. And I think that would be interesting to, to get into right now as to what sort of connection areas or techniques or help we can get from people who are doing this well already yeah i mean tiktok i consider myself a relative amateur and a relative newcomer to but i have to say i absolutely love it as a communication medium i think twitter has just become so toxic even smart people who are very capable of arguing are now scared to say stuff on Twitter for fear of the fury of the masses. It's become, as a forum for debate, it's become unstable. You're better, better off going to the pub at 11.30 in the evening and going in there and saying, I love Margaret Thatcher, who's with me in Wales. We'll go down to the well, just wait for the onslaught. Whereas TikTok does seem very um, positive. Of course, there are negative elements to it generally it seems to me that people are on there to make themselves better people and whether that's my eldest daughter going on there for beauty tips or style advice or, or whatever or other people going there and working out to how to make a cupboard people are going on there for all sorts of reasons but it feels to me like a very positive environment and so this is something that i got into as part of my kind of rhetoric for the masses thing which was the rally and cry in my TEDx Verona talk in 2016 and so I thought this is a great way to connect with the next generation and just give them really quick tips for free but do it in a TikTok style and so it was my daughter I think I don't know how much of this I put in the final draft of the book actually a lot of it might have been out by final draft but it was my daughter who got me on TikTok and she helped me make my first few videos and she was literally coaching me she was like 12 at the time or something like that yeah. But she was like, you've got to be more energetic. You've got to be faster. It's just not like this. It's got to be less than a minute, Dad. If it goes over a minute, no one's going to listen to you. And so I I was like, as someone who's always had the luxury, either giving one-hour lectures or if even a whole-day workshops, a short speech for me as a TED Talk, where it's like 60 minutes, and all of a sudden it was like, fucking hell, I've got to put this in a minute. <laughs> Sorry, Johnny's mum. We got on in the end. <laughs> 
it was coming out of Borneo. But it was a great challenge. So it was like, I'm going to give you six rhetorical tricks in one minute. Start the clock. I'm going to give you five persuasive hacks in one minute. Start the clock. And people loved it. And whilst I started off doing this for, I suppose you'd say, a 16 to 24 demographic, in fact, I found a lot of the people that were liking it on TikTok were people in their 30s and 40s that probably shouldn't have been on TikTok. And they were up. Then I, then I thought, like, well, I wonder whether there'd be a crossover and that I can use these videos that I've created for TikTok on LinkedIn. And the feedback on LinkedIn, as, as you would have seen, was phenomenal. And so, like, the videos that I've done, these little one-minute bite-sized communication that have been getting tremendous views. So a lot of them have had almost 200,000 views on TikTok. And then when I've shared them on LinkedIn, they've had 50,000 views. And so there's great, great, great impact. And it's challenged me. I always love being challenged. That's why I like writing books and a new challenge. How much can you say in a minute? Brilliant. Love it. I think it's super important. And to me, it makes sense. I think there's a very high demand for short form content right now. And the nature of social media tends to be that we are scrolling through various social media channels to find the content that we want or that we connect with. And so stuff that stands out is going to be super important. And also stuff that doesn't slow down our, our scrolling for too long as well is probably even more helpful. Like a five-minute video, if it's really interesting, good, then yeah, people might take the time or longer. But 30 seconds to a minute, yeah, that's no big deal. People can tune in for that. And if they get some value from that as well, it's like YouTube doing it, Instagram are doing it, TikTok, of course, but, and that's why the other channels are doing it. I guess probably even LinkedIn is going to get in on this at some point a bit more as well and make more space for it. But yeah, it makes perfect sense to me that short form content is a great way to introduce and connect with an audience. Yeah. So one of the things that really fascinates me about it, Johnny, is that how it works in that split second way, particularly with TikTok, when you are just swiping through and, you know, you do it so absentmindedly, you're certainly not rationally analyzing anything. You're just like, oh, well, I had a look at you. And it's that thing that I think you think about, like with your drop and your lighting and all of this. So it's like, it's interesting. I remember we spoke about this the last time that I was on and I need to get as good as you on the backdrop and stuff like that. Too often my back, just like really messy bookshelves and insight into the, the crazy mind of a speechwriter, I think. And it, and if this is what you can see, seriously, you want to see the mess on the floor around me. I'm not going to show you. Yeah, okay. We, we don't need the full tour of, of the floor and everything, Simon. But, but yeah, books on the shelf behind you generally is considered a good idea when you're doing video stuff anyway, especially if you're doing educational content. You know, that association, that connection is there straight away. It's like, oh, there's books. This is some something educational or informative or someone who has some intelligence. That, that connection definitely is there for people, especially if you are an author, if you are a writer. It makes sense that you would at least have some books in your background. And I think once I've published mine, I'm like, well... <laughs> change my background a little bit as well to match that a bit more yeah but i think you can get even smartronics i'm not sure with this it's like i'm selling a book now it's obvious i'm selling a book there's a guy in sweden that you should check out and i think my friend ricard might be in the audience right now also in sweden if so hi ricard and the guy i'm going to talk about in sweden is david jp phillips check him out johnny what he's doing on um i i have i've heard the link for yeah, 
So on TikTok, he is smashing it. He's absolutely smashing it. He's got something like 3 million followers. And his some of his videos have 15 million views. And it's really great little communication. But what he does with his background, and there was one TikTok where he talks about this. He was talking about, you'll see, I've got the lighting at this level. And that induces in you this emotion. The color is this, and that induces this emotion. The background music is that, and that induces this. So he's like really hitting all of the senses. And in actual fact, there there is, because you like book recommendations on your show, don't you? Here, let me recommend this book to you and all your listeners. I should recommend it after my own book, actually. You need to get this first. This one first. Now. Definitely. Have to inspire, influence, energize anyone, anywhere, anytime. But after you've ordered that, then get this one, which is Sense by Russell Jones. Unlock your senses and improve your life. And he writes, in that this guy is a sensory designer and he works for all sorts of big businesses like the coffee stores and stuff like that, where they think to every detail, what color do we need? What music do we need playing? And he unlocks in here the science of senses in a way that will make anyone who's interested in the devious art of persuasion and influence. It'll absolutely it'll get your mouth watering almost as much as Boris's cake. That sounds very exciting to me. And I'm I'm a big fan of that level of attention to detail as well. So I know that I will enjoy that. And I'm sure my, my audience will appreciate that kind of thing as well. It's like the... There's a level of, well, just get started and do it. And then there's a level of, well, let's master this and let's really be intentional about it. In fact, let's make, let's create the right atmosphere for learning, for sharing, for storytelling, whatever. Those, those sorts of things, like atmosphere is, is so important when it comes to connection. Even without all of that, what are some of the things we can do on a more personal level to create that, do you think? To create connection with the, just with people when we meet them? Yeah, to create that. Yeah, that sensory atmosphere to change mood, perhaps, or to put people into a certain state. Well, I think that the most important one for me is how we feel. If we feel good, other people are going to feel good. If we feel excited, other people are going to feel excited. If we feel anxious, other people are going to feel anxious. So I think that, and this is why I have the whole mind-body thing, that mind-body connection chapter comes before the me-we connecting the personal with the universal because I think it's so important that you're in a good place before you go and speak to other people whether that's going to a social function or you're doing a big conference speech or you're chairing your team meeting just taking time to check in and get your own mind in the right space reminding yourself of your purpose why are you here what do you actually what are the feelings you want to create in people and then if you're like well I need to excite them then you need to be excited yourself. You're not going to excite them if you go in there and you've only had three hours sleep or whatever. Yeah. So for me, it's kind of the, the things that are maybe a bit more contextual and, and things like metaphor, which you talk a lot about, to me, sort of set the scene there, the context of what things come into you. There's that setting the tone or you talk about things like, we talked about COVID as coming in waves or we talk about the connections that we make, like going on a journey, for example, or the food connections and those sorts of metaphors and similes that we use with that how conscious are we talk about detail and sensory detail before with the other book but 
how conscious can we be of that with the sorts of metaphors we use when we're looking to set a particular emotional scene in a story or a speech? Yeah, well, I think just going back to the COVID point generally, because I think the thing is, the important starting point is just that we think through connections. You know, connections is the way that we think. So it's not just a rhetorical trick. It's like an appreciation of the way our brain works, that a new topic, something novel, complex, ambiguous is introduced to us. And then instantly the way we make sense of it is through making a connection with something else, which is what we do when we meet people. We're like, oh, you're like this person. Your name is Johnny Ball. So you're going to be fun because I grew up watching Johnny Ball on TV. So your name's great. You You look very smiling. Yeah, but I'm I'm terrible at maths. (laughs) I'll forgive you that. But you know, likewise with issues. So you get coronavirus comes along. Scientists all around the world are trying to make sense of it. And the way they make sense is through making connections. And some of those scientists are saying, this is like Spanish flu. Shit, this is going to be serious. It could wipe out millions of people unless we take it seriously. Other people in Asian countries, more familiar with SARS, are saying, this is like SARS. means we need to invoke all of those procedures that we had in place on SARS. Then you've got people in Whitehall who are like, ah, it's like seasonal flu. It's just like seasonal flu. It's a variation on that. So they're like, it's mild and moderate. Those connections people were then making scientists are just as liable to get things wrong in this way by starting with this connection which is then now hypothesis which then proves to be wrong as the rest of us and so that's the thing that it's an awareness that this is actually the the mind works and if you get locked onto the wrong connection then the consequences can be fatal for a country or for yourself with people like and the judgments some people made about vaccines where people like Oh, but this is like, you know, how they lied to us about Iraq or they lied to us about the financial crisis or they lied to us about this or they lied about that. And they're therefore, they're making connections in their own mind, which then lead them not to have a vaccine. My wife's maiden name is Jenna. (laughs) So for us, there was never any question we were having the vaccine in our household because it was like, well, we see vaccines as being things that save the whole of humanity we've got a connection and so it's really just is that awareness this is how we think and a lot of thought works through connections because that's the way our brain works and we should be conscious of that when we're communicating as well that often thing about making connections is the most effective way to get across a powerful message yeah i mean our our brains are essentially pattern-seeking machines really we're always looking for patterns always looking for connections but they're not always never don't always necessarily find the right ones the most supportive or positive ones for sure and i think one of the things you talked about in the book was about having your kind of your own metaphors like for yourself or for your business as well ones that relate particularly to you yeah can you talk a bit more about that yeah absolutely i mean so many businesses get lost particularly bigger businesses get lost in mixed metaphors where they're fighting this and they're killing that and they're planting seeds and they're playing in different fields and they're driving change and they have no clear image of what it is that they're trying to communicate. You want to sit down and I do this with clients. We'll sit down and literally we'll just workshop it and we'll consider different types of metaphors and then we'll land at the one 
which we think is going to have the biggest impact. So one of the ones, I mean, I used to think about my business as that I was basically a pirate and I was getting all of this treasure from ancient rhetoric and neuroscience and I was presenting nuggets of information. So I had a clear vision that I was like, you know, Jack Sparrow or something like that. And that image like worked for me. And I would suggest that anyone listening should look to do the same. So, I mean, like the book connects. This is about giving you superpowers. This is basically making you into a superhero, this book. And so it's gonna, it's full of super powerful devices. If you want the wow, order it. And of course, the cover of it is very much like the Marvel comic superhero. Wow, pow. But which also fits in with the idea of electricity, which runs through the book. So I've thought about the metaphor in that. And I try to make sure that all of my comms is sticking to that metaphor insofar as it can. You know, you can't be too anal about this if you, there will always be some mixed metaphors. But I know what I'm trying to say. Whether I succeed in saying it is another matter. Hey, I think you do a pretty good job, Simon. Well, well, I, maybe it explains for me why I'm so interested in the world of influence and persuasion, because I, my biggest ambition when I was a kid was completely unrealistic and impossible of wanting to be a superhero. Like, I loved comic books. I wanted to be, I think, initially Superman, but then it was more Spider-Man. I don't have that desire anymore. You know, I have at least grown out of Although the idea of being able to fly to that is still very appealing. But, you know, I live in reality. But I do feel that these sorts of things do give you a certain amount of superpowers. I feel even like, um, even in the world of coaching, I've studied NLP and personal development and things like that. Like some of it's great, some of it maybe not, not as much, but a lot of it's very useful. And, uh, and I always continue to learn stuff. And I do think it gives you a special powers to be able to change people's thinking, powers to be able to change an atmosphere or a mood, or to be able to influence individuals or groups or, or even governments. I've talked about that on the show before, but, um, this really is a superpower, being able to intentionally influence and persuade people. Yeah. And I think not just, let's be clear as well, it's not just about influencing and persuading other people. You can use this to influence and persuade yourself. So I start thinking I'm giving people superpowers. That makes me really excited about what I'm doing. And so you just use that language and it frames it a different way. And this is stuff actively that I've used throughout my life. So I say in the book about how Paul McKenna tapes really helped me find my confidence when I was in my mid-twenties. When I gave up smoking, I used to be a proper chain smoker. I was not a social smoker. I was a real smoker. I was like 40 to 60 cigarettes a day. And the way that I got off was the Alan Carr easy way to give up smoking. Of course, he... Him, me too. Yeah. yeah. Me too. Genius. Genius. I've, got, I've been in a bad mood ever since. But <laughs> it's, it's... And of course, Paul McKenna and Alan Carr they're both NLPers. Now, I've never studied NLP, but I've read a few books. I've read, I've, literally, I think I've got NLP for dummies somewhere down here. But So I get the kind of idea. Um, but I think that's a really important point. That this, And particularly, for I know a number of the people that listen to your podcast are people who work for themselves. And so it's actually making sure that the way you communicate with yourself is effective as well. And particularly post-COVID, I think we all need to make sure that we're giving ourselves a boost and keeping ourselves excited and inspired about what we do. Yeah, and that is one of the hardest things to do. And I do feel, having been a coach for such a long time, one of the things that I feel is most important is the 
energy state that you are in on each day. Like if you are in a really bad energetic way, and I don't mean this in any kind of spiritual way, I mean it more in the sense of like you would understand if your emotions are really down, if you're feeling really low, you do tend to find that that affects your experience and often even your results as well. And yet when you feel great, when you feel on top of things, great things happen. I think it was, um, I'm going to have a struggle to remember, but, but the luck factor, Dr. Richard Wiseman, who was uh, talking about what luck is about and how essentially the experiments that he performed pretty conclusively showed that good luck or bad luck really depended on whether you believed you were lucky or whether you believed you were unlucky. It really was that sort of your state of expectation would determine the kind of action you'd take and therefore the kind of results that you'd see. And lucky people were more likely to go for it and unlucky people were far less likely to go for it and more fearful. And I think this applies not just to luck, but to so many things in our life. It's like if, if your energy is in a bad place, not only is that affecting you, it's also affecting everyone you come into contact with. Yeah. Well, absolutely. The books that I've read recently that I found really inspiring, that I did draw on actually and cited in Connect, is the book called Confidence by the neuroscientist Ian Robertson. Um, and Ian very generously gave me a lovely quote, which is on the front page of Connect. But that is stuffed with advice along those kinds of lines about how you've got to sort out your internal narrative, basically. And he's not. Sometimes think some people in the area of NLP can be a little bit. This guy's a neuroscientist. And, you? and he re I mean, he knows it. He really knows his onions. And you read the book and he tells it in a very relatable way, but all very much backed up with science. Yeah, oh, I love that. That's something I haven't come across and I will check out that book and that sounds great. One thing I do want to get to, I think it's great. You know, we have some really interesting stuff that we've been talking about, but something that people actually take away on a very practical basis, hopefully they're already thinking about it's forced how they're using those as well. But you do talk in the book about six specific things that you can do for a more powerful speech. I wonder if you can share some of those things with us now. Are these my six rhetorical devices, Johnny? Yes. Fabulous. I just, because I, I have a few six step structures. So I just wanted to be quick amongst my, because it fits so beautifully in 60 seconds. But yeah, okay, here we go. I'll see if I can do it in 60 seconds for you. So start off one, three breathless sentences, profits down, markets in turmoil, competitors on the move. Sounds urgent like you're hyperventilating. Two, three repetitive sentences where you repeat the opening clause. We've got to change the way we think as a business. We've got to change the way we market ourselves as a business. We've got to change the way that we interact with our customers as a business. Then three contrasting sentences where it sounds like we're weighing something up. So we can't maintain the status quo. We need to absolutely transform. And this begins not just with people in the sales force, it affects us on the board as well. And that is why today I'm saying instead of doing things like we used to do, we must move to the future. And then you have a metaphor. The metaphor plants an image in people's minds. So you're like, today we are launching a new business that is going to go into the stratosphere in it. Then you have exaggeration, that's step five. And it's going to blow all your minds. It's going to be absolutely incredible. No one's ever seen a business like this in the history of business. And then you end with rhyme because rhyme's sublime and this will ensure that we thrive not just survive and so these are six super powerful rhetorical devices boom you can attach it to any issue 
any point and improvise a super powerful speech. Even the most ludicrous arguments in the world can be made to sound quite compelling by deploying that structure. Might be quite fun, actually, if someone in the audience wants to come in and suggest a, or you, Johnny, anyone, if anyone wants to suggest a topic, and I'll riff a speech out using those techniques on the fly. If I can, I should bear it, just say in my defence, if it's a bit shit, that it is the end of a very long and I can take me. But I'll personally do my best. We'll, we'll be as kind to you as possible. There are a few people in the in the audience who can use the chat box if they're not aware. Cecile, who is joining us from Switzerland, gives you the topic of water sewage. Water sewage. Can I just say, Cecile is an amazing woman and you absolutely need to check out her TEDx talk. She is super, super inspiring herself. But... Really, Cecile, you, is that the best you can come up with? Sweet. But what on earth, Robbie says, uh, so, okay, all right. You have another topic as well to choose from. Isra, Isra, Isra suggests banning school uniforms as a topic. No, I'm going I'm to stick with the first. My, my mind is, is, is rocking now. But do we have to look at sewage this way? Do we have to always see the negative side of things? Do we have to dwell on the things we don't like about everything. Instead of always looking at the worst of something, instead we should look at the best. Not being hung up by the challenges, instead looking for the opportunities. And whilst of course there are toxins in sewage, at the same time there is plenty of good to be had. Now I happen to know that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, they are developing technologies right now where you can instantly purify the most putrid sewage water. And this is the golden goose that will change everything about the way that we see sewage, where now instantly all of us will just be able to take water out of the river and just drop a little tablet in and instantly we'll be able to drink from it. And this is going to be amazing. It's absolutely going to transform the world. And so I'm going to close by saying, and I hope you don't think I'm a bit of a tit, but I'm going to call on all your viewers to start drinking shit. I think you did very well there, Simon, and that was excellent. Very entertaining too. So those are the six principles, the six rhetorical devices that Simon saw that in action that you could practice and do for yourself. And one of the things you say in the book that I think is really important with this is that you say the more you use this stuff, the more it becomes part of who you are. And I think I think for anyone who wants to be a good communicator, whether that's public speaking, podcasting, videos, TikTok, whatever, we need to be able need to be intentional about it. We need to be committed to the art of doing this and to doing it well and aim to make these things part of who you are by practice and repetition so i'm really behind your message there to do that and make it part of who we are yeah absolutely and it's one of the things that i did in lockdown actually that when i was just trying to make sure i was keeping my speech writing capacity active like when it was quiet for commissions it's always quiet for speech writing in summer basically i do probably 80 percent of my work from october through to march Literally, about 80% of my year's work in those five months 
rest of the year is quite quiet. That's when all the conferences take place, all the big conferences take place. And so to keep my brain active, literally every morning I would just walk up the hill. I live in the Brecon Beacons, gorgeous part of Wales. And I would just walk up the hill with my dog and I would improvise a speech using the six steps that I just did for you on whatever the top news story was. And I did that every day, like for a couple of weeks and then uploaded it to TikTok. And it was great, just a good way to keep the brain muscle working, you know, and just for fun, not being paid for it, but just making sure that I maintain my faculties. Simon, in the book, you talk at the end about, about how you discovered a love for football, particularly. And I think, you know, I was hearing football is not my thing. And I know that uh, you were saying it wasn't yours either. And it hadn't been something you're interested in. Like you'd glaze over. I was thinking, yeah, that's me. I'm going to kind of glaze over when we talk about football kind of thing. But I think some of that connects in with why you wrote this book and why you write about this topic. And so I'd love you to share a little bit about your, your newly discovered love of football. I mean, it's crazy. Think as many writers are, I'm quite happy on my own. So first lockdown, I was ever so happy. I loved it, just with my family. It was really, really nice. I wasn't working. I wasn't flying all over the place. It was really, really cool. And then um, the second lockdown, I was like, I was beginning to get very, very hungry for just companionship and connection, real connection with people. I was really, really missing it with friends, but also that feel of just being with large, large numbers of people. I grew up in the absolute centre of London. I grew up in Paddington. We'd walk to Oxford Street. We were used to really being in really packed areas. My God, I just missed it. I missed it so much. And now I took my daughters to my eldest daughter is in the local football team. She's a great footballer. She's amazing. She's, She's a goalie, but she can play in any position, more or less. And so I'd taken her before to see Brentford play. And, um, Then the first match we had gone when they were just in the championship, when they were in like the lower league, and then they got promoted to the premiership. And we watched on TV their first game of the season against Arsenal. And they were in a brand new stadium and everyone started singing Hey Jude, which is a song that is meaningful for me for so many reasons. It was number one when my eldest brother was born. And this book is dedicated to my eldest brother who's been an inspiration. He's energized me throughout his life. You should see his TikTok channel where he's roller skating to hip hop all of the time. He's, I mean, he's great. He's absolutely great. So it was number one when he was born. When 9-11 happened, I was at the Grand Hotel in Brighton where, because it was TUC and Blair had been given speech that day. And I was there with Alan Johnson, actually. And that evening, we were all in the bar and I got on the piano, as I always do, you know, (laughs) Whenever there's a piano, I'll always hijack it. And I remember that night so well that I played Hey Jude and you had like heaps of people, like literally a hundred people singing along. And I remember watching that Brentford Arsenal game and seeing everyone singing Hey Jude. And literally I had tears down my, running down my cheeks and I was just like, oh my God, I need to, I want to go. I want to be at the next Brentford games. And so we've gone to a heap of games this season and there is something so phenomenal about after all of the shit of COVID, being with 35,000 human beings and you are all singing the same song and you're all wearing the same colours and you're all wanting the same thing and none of you are looking at your bloody phones. You're focused on what's going on on the pitch. I still can look at it rationally 
and say this is bloody stupid. What a complete waste of time watching people kick a ball about. I mean, this is ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. But I freaking love it. I absolutely love it. So I've become a complete football addict. I've literally, I've been to about 15 games this season and I'm afraid I'm probably a football addict. Like having spent the first 50 years of my life not caring a shit about football at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe there's a chance that I'll yet discover the joys of it, but who, who can say? But I can certainly appreciate the atmosphere side of things and the engagement, and that for many people it might be one of the only real times in their lives where they're actually really present in the moment, as you say, not looking into phones and even scrolling through Twitter or whatever. Um, Simon, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you, as it always is, and I wish you every success with the book. I've thoroughly enjoyed reading it and there'll be links in the show notes for the book your book recommendations and and some of the other stuff that we've talked about today as well for people to go and check out so i'm in lancaster thank you so much for coming and being a guest on podfluence and for making us part of your connect book launch event johnny thank you so much for having me on i always love speaking with you and I wish all the best to you and Podfluence. I'm looking forward to the next few shows. Well, thanks for tuning in. I hope you have enjoyed the show. If you did, make sure you are subscribed for future episodes. In my next episode, I will be continuing my series on the seven deadly sins of podcasting. Things that you definitely should be avoiding doing if you are looking to build influence as a podcast guest. Let me once again quickly apologize for some of the sound issues in this episode. One of the reasons why I generally don't do live episodes of the show is the technical issues that come along with that that make it not ideal for podcast listening. Rest assured that my upcoming shows are all recorded in full studio quality and certainly when Simon comes back on the show we will do a full studio recording for that too. If you enjoy the show and you would like more content of this nature, you can subscribe to the Podfluencer weekly newsletter and you are also welcome to join the Podfluencers Facebook group, both of which are linked in the show notes, as well as links to Simon's books and his book recommendations from this episode. I do hope you'll join me again next time, but for now, wherever you're going, whatever you're doing, have an amazing rest of your day. Go and make great things happen.